Hello and welcome to the IFSEC Global Security and Focus podcast, where we bring you exclusive interviews with leading figures in the physical security industry to get to the heart of the profession. Hello, hello. We're back for this month's Security in Focus podcast for episode eight. Thanks for joining us today, wherever you're listening in the world. Somehow we've made it to the end of 2022. Uh, Now we're in December. For those who celebrate it, hope everyone is looking forward to a relaxing and enjoyable festive period. On today's podcast, we're lucky enough to be joined by not one, but two guests. The focus of the episode is one that I've no doubt will be of interest across the security sector and beyond given its critical importance to everyone's lives, not least over the last couple of years. So what is it? Well, today we'll be talking about healthcare and specifically about securing the healthcare sector. You'll hear insight from Roger Ringham and Darren Chalmers-Stevens, both of whom work within or closely with the healthcare sector. Roger is an assistant director in the NHS or the National Health Service for those of you not in the UK as well as the chair of the National Association for Healthcare Security here in the UK. We'll find out a little bit more about what the association is all about later on. But we've also got Darren, who is the Group Chief Operating Officer at Critical Arc, the manufacturer of SafeZone technology. SafeZone is in use across healthcare environments in the UK, US and Australian markets. So Darren is able to offer a really unique perspective of the wider picture of healthcare security and how technology is playing a role in supporting staff and security personnel. Before we get into the episode though, I'll hand over to Rihanna Sexton as usual for a couple of news highlights from the security sector this month. Thanks James. Hello everyone, I'm Rihanna and this is the latest news from IFSEC Global. First up, Further concerns have been raised about the treatment of security guards in Qatar on the eve of the 2022 FIFA World Cup. The new report from The Guardian raised concerns over the treatment of migrant workers, in particular security guards in Qatar, the host country of this year's Premier Football Tournament. Interviews were carried out over the past few months with guards from Al Nazir Star Security Services, as well as an analysis of workers' pay notifications. According to the report, migrant workers being employed as security guards are paid as little as 35 pence per hour. 12-hour shifts, one day off a month and low pay were just some of the issues that were raised. Also in the news, Volume 2 of the report of the inquiry into the 2017 Manchester Arena bombing examines the response of the emergency services. Published in November, Volume 2 highlighted that better coordination and communication between individual emergency services and a less risk-averse approach to some decisions may have helped save the lives of one and possibly two victims and help the injured receive quicker treatment. In his conclusions at the inquiry, Chairman Sir John Saunders said the best risk assessment in such situations is a joint one between all the emergency services on the scene. Thanks, Rihanna. So back to today's discussion with Roger and Darren. During the chat, we cover an array of topics, starting with some of the key challenges facing security in the healthcare sector at present. In particular here in the UK, we've seen a lot of reports in the media highlighting just how stretched the National Health Service is at the moment. It's something I've read and heard from numerous sources, uh, including my mum, actually, who works in the NHS. Quick shout out to Denise Moore, if I may. We asked Roger how this is impacting upon the delivery of security and the personnel themselves protecting the facilities. And Darren expands on this to look at how similar challenges are being faced elsewhere outside of the UK 
and also the impact that rising mental health issues are having on security officers on the front line. It would, of course, be impossible to ignore the pressure that healthcare staff have faced over the last few years as a result of the global pandemic. So we hear how security teams had to quickly adapt to set up localised vaccine and testing stations, a huge job under intense scrutiny and pressure. So let's get into it, shall we? We begin by asking Roger and Darren to introduce themselves and their background in the healthcare security industry. My name is Roger Ringham. I'm an assistant director in the NHS. I'm also chair of the National Association for Healthcare Security. I'm Darren. I'm Darren Chalmers-Stevens, and I'm the Group Chief Operating Officer across Critical Art, the manufacturer of SafeZone. To give some context to Critical Art, you do quite a lot in the uh, healthcare sector, is that right? Absolutely, yes. So uh, across both the UK, US and the Australian market, so it can offer quite a unique perspective in that regard. Thanks for joining us today. I think, Roger, if we start with you and, and just sort of look at the key challenges, I guess, facing security in the healthcare sector at the moment, obviously, We all know that the NHS in particular, or the National Health Service, for those who aren't listening from the UK, is understaffed and under quite a lot of pressure, to say the least, I think, from the reports and things I've been reading and watching. Resources are obviously really stretched. How does that impact upon, A, the threats to the healthcare sector, and also how does that impact on the security personnel as well? First of all, I'd probably say the key threats to security in the main are deregulation of security within the NHS, no central commander or control structure, no real direction, analysis or intelligence about where things are moving, no bespoke training or education or defined career professional development, I think, for healthcare security personnel is the worst of it. And that obviously has an after effect on the personnel coming through and what kind of training is available? Is is that something that's missing at the moment, do you feel, because of the deregulation that's taken place? Yes. I mean, back in 2017 and prior to that, there was an organisation called NHS Protect, which was run by Department of Health and Social Care. They ceased to exist and nothing took its place. As part of that, when you joined the NHS Security Management Service, first of all, You were propriety checked to make sure that you were a fit and proper person to hold the post. Secondly, you had to take a university accreditation. None of that exists now. People are taken on. There are training courses out there that talk about security, obviously, that you can get through various universities uh, and other training institutions. But there's nothing really that's bespoke to healthcare. My background is ex-police, so I obviously had a lot of training over my 30 years as a police officer, but there's nothing specifically there for healthcare security professionals, which is something that we are trying through NARS and we'll be developing as we move forward. Okay. And with NARS, National Association of Healthcare Securities, is is that correct? That's correct. How does that structure work? Is it it a collaboration of of lots of different sort of heads of, of healthcare security professionals like yourself? Yeah, I mean, we're ongoing and developing, but yeah, NARS has been around for a little while now, but it is a voluntary organisation, which is managed by people like myself. So people who have uh, expertise, experience in healthcare. We currently have 700 members. We are developing healthcare security officer and healthcare security manager training. So that's level one to three for healthcare security officers and level five to seven for healthcare security managers. And the first of those courses will be out soon. So these will be bespoke courses for anyone who's in healthcare security. Darren, is this something you're also picking up on, obviously, when you're going in and talking to the end users? What are they looking for when they're talking to you in terms of 
protection or support in their in their day-to-day lives from protecting the hospitals but also managing the safety of staff and patients and that kind of thing yeah so i guess there's different conversations being had based on the persona that i'm engaged with so if we look at the executive levels the staff shortages budget pressures uh, each of those have you know different impacts in terms of the way you can deliver safety and security uh, and how you can do things like retain staff and you can recruit staff you know, people feel like they're under constant pressure. Obviously, we've we've heard a lot in the headlines that NHS staff are, in particular, and this represents, you know, or, or manifests itself around the world the same way that everyone needs to do more with less. And you can only continually wring out that sponge and get that water out to the point where it becomes very dry and people end up leaving or you know, people get to a breaking point and want to move on. So we need to look at those different factors. And one of the big factors at the moment that seems to be on the increase based on all the commentary and the conversations we're having is workplace violence. So you know, that, that is on the most part on the increase. And there's a whole bunch of different drivers and reasons for that. Uh, and obviously it gets exacerbated by a staffing shortages in the NHS, whether that be security or the clinical side, to be able to respond and to deal with other increases from mental health, it could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be a whole bunch of emotional different charges that drive people to commit violence towards those that are trying to there to keep us safe and help us. So that they'd be sort of some of the key challenges out there. Again, workplace violence, pretty much number one, wherever I go in the Australia, in the US, uh, here. Protect duty coming forward, so you know, public accessible locations, there's a lot of conversation at the moment about how are people preparing that potential legislation that's coming through. Yeah, obviously it was pretty much days away from being approved before to the, the change in government, but we expect that to obviously come through in the, in the short term. You know, crowded spaces, hospital is a good example of a crowded space, you know, large transient population coming through. How do you prepare for a potential bladed instrument or an active threat in that kind of environment? How do you lock down? How do you communicate with people in the hospital to let them know what's happening in real time? How do you respond to that incident in real time and have a meaningful impact on the outcome of that situation? Again, big issue that people are trying to consider and how, how they respond to that. And probably the, the last one I sort of picked up on it very briefly there was mental health. It's double-sided coin, really. Uh, one is, if you look at it from that mental health is on the increase in the population. So more people are turning up with mental health issues, whether that be... Yeah, a basic level that someone has you know, tried to um, you know, take their life. Uh, obviously, when they turn up with needing additional medical support and intervention, the police are obviously there. But that's sort of the, the entry level, I suppose, to a certain degree, through to someone who has long-term mental health issues, turning up again, requiring a different type of response. So, you know, a brutal security officer response of just coming in and grabbing the person and throwing them out the door if they are um, erratic in the ER department isn't the right response necessarily. We need to be looking at how we respond and how we train, as Roger mentioned there, staff to be recognising those situations and those individuals and how to respond appropriately. And then on the other side of the coin, staff, you know, both clinical and security, you know, their mental health, if they are, as we know, uh, under pressure and, you know, being asked to do more with less, their breaking point, how do we look for signs that our own staff are potentially on the edge of needing intervention and support and help? They're all considerations and threats or challenges that are currently being faced. So there's a lot there to take in. I don't know if there's anything in particular, James, that you want to dive into, but uh, that'd certainly be uh, some of the ones that I would see on a repetitive basis. Really insightful. Thank you both on that point. As you say, Darren, there is a lot there to cover. Obviously, mental health being a you know significant one. 
And that kind of leads me on a little bit when, you know, we're talking about healthcare and the situation. I don't think we can ignore the role that the global pandemic played in mental health, but also in the challenges that the NHS faced. Roger, what was it like, you know, at the coalface in that time, you know, protecting staff, ensuring patient safety, while you had social distancing measures? My mum worked for the NHS and she said it was incredibly tough to try and maintain social distancing in, in a clinical environment and all of this kind of stuff. And what kind of measures did security staff have to put in place to protect the hospitals again from, I know that, I don't know if there were many sort of campaigners, you know, anti-vax campaigners and that kind of stuff that went towards there. How did the sector kind of combat these challenges that were just, you know, obviously almost overnight thrown at you? So the pandemic was new to us all, obviously, whether a clinician or security staff and the setting up of mass vaccination sites literally overnight and delivering on their security. And I note that you mentioned hospitals there, James, and that's great. But bearing in mind that a lot of these centres were set up in village halls. I had some that were tents in open race courses and a variety of different settings. We also, on top of that, had the school age immunisation service programme, so going out to schools. And we also had what we called the peripatetic or the outreach programmes. So this is where certain areas, geographical locations or communities weren't as quick on the uptake to be vaccinated. So we literally had to go out to the community either in buses or, again, finding a local venue where we could start to give these vaccinations. We also had all the legislation to set up, such as the infection control, the social distancing and the moratorium on people's movements. In terms of that, we had to look at a variety of threats. I mean, that there was a concern, the target for terrorism, you know, high volume areas, a very political topic. So we, we had to look at everything from terrorism when pandemic was at its height and also professional thieves targeting us because when the pandemic was at its height and not many of the population had been vaccinated, the value of the vaccine was very high. There was also the threat by at the anti-vax movement, which was well coordinated, where not only would they would uh, come and protest outside of premises where we were vaccinating, but they would also infiltrate ranged sit-ins and literally try to stop the process taking place. In addition, PPE, personal protective equipment, all of a sudden had this massive intrinsic value. So things like gloves, face masks, hand sanitizer, all became high value targets for professional thieves. There were cases where hand sanitizer units were literally ripped off the walls in ITUs and other places like that so people could get their hand on sanitizer before these things had had little to no value and little to no security. I'm returning to my point earlier about deregulation, etc. There was very little in the way of intelligence or direction, which just made it all harder. Also, obviously, for staff, it was a great change for them. A lot of them moved from their normal day jobs to take up duties in relation to mass vaccination and also where they had to go and work. They were no longer in a healthcare setting, but they were suddenly travelling miles to a race course in the middle of the night, which was open, or going to a village hall or some other venue. It was a massive undertaking. And are there any processes that have kind of remained in place still as a result of some of the changes that were implemented because of some of the, you know, the things you have to think of on the spot? Is there anything that's still in place now that will be in place in the future, do you think? 
Oh, definitely. Obviously, we learn and we evolve and we've established new processes in terms of how we would set those places up, how we would arrange their security. What we did try to do in in certain places is obviously work with if, if they already had security measures in place. You know, some do, some don't. It depends on where it was. But we tried to utilize local measures that were already in place. But yeah, we've now got defined SOPs that hopefully we won't get to the position we were in last time. But if we did, we could sort of resurrect that and use it again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Darren, from your perspective, technology obviously is playing a bigger role in security than ever before, the kind of combination and collaboration of tech with security personnel. Did technology play a role in the pandemic to support staff from the security side, but also elsewhere, not just in hospitals, as Roger says, also in those kind of pop-up vaccination centres, if you will. Absolutely. I think that mobilisation of safety and security outside of the hospital was a big challenge for many organisations to think about. You know, traditionally, you have control of your own environment, such as the hospital. You can put cameras, access control, security officers, etc. But just the sheer number of locations and the, you know, the fact that they weren't owned, as Roger mentioned there, by the trust, it had impacts on what levels of safety and security you could implement at speed. Uh, we had obviously operations extending outside of traditional hours, you know, people working alone. Again, all these factors weren't necessarily considered when they were spinning up the operations. I think the bit that was most interesting for me, I, I took this away from a conversation I had in Australia with the head of response for St Vincent's Hospital. She said she wasn't prepared for the amount of potential threat from internally from staff, but also from local residents that they actually picked up during the initial mobilisation of their response. And really what that come down to is two parts. One was the staff. The staff were actually very concerned that you were bringing patients into either an environment where people had COVID and they were being treated by staff, which potentially would endanger their lives. Obviously, in the early days, there's a lot of rhetoric out there. There was a lot of unknowns. So the staff were obviously concerned for their own safety that you were bringing people in that had this life threatening disease that potentially could be caught by staff and you know, there was big concerns there in terms of how you respond. It was almost like, can you set up a separate hospital somewhere else where you, know, you employ different people? We don't want to get involved with that. And the second part was in the community where they were set up COVID clinics. They actually had really aggressive neighbours to the clinics, you know, people that had a house near the clinic, basically you know, threatening, assaulting staff because, they, again, the concern and the uneducated individuals at the time, because there wasn't a huge amount of education about what the threat was personally, saw this as you were bringing COVID to their doorstep. You were bringing people that could have COVID to my location where I'm currently self-isolating. Let's be honest, none of us would necessarily think about those considerations ahead of planning for an event like that, because we hadn't had a previous pandemic for whatever it was in early 1900s. As a result of that, we really need to think about preparedness and mobilising safety and security outside of that traditional environment where we've put a lot of focus and funding, which is the hospital. We have more community care being delivered as a big strategy and drive from the government and also from the NHS to deliver more care in the community. Therefore, one of those sort of takeaways really from the pandemic would be how do we continue to deliver safety and security in a consistent fashion in the community, in people's homes, in clinical environments, you know, outside of the hospital where most of the focus has been traditionally applied. Hello, listeners. Are you involved in the operation, maintenance, installation or sale of video surveillance equipment? Would you like to know more about the latest trends, opportunities and challenges facing the sector? Well, you're in luck. IFSEC Global has just released its latest video surveillance report, analysing the responses of over 400 security facilities and IT professionals. 
The 25 page report, yeah, that's right, 25 page report is free to download now on Ifset Global, covering aspects from the use of artificial intelligence in cameras, what hardware and software is most in demand and has been in use in the last 12 months, and the challenges facing the sector in terms of cybersecurity and wider economical pressures. Head to ifsetglobal.com to download the report today or click the link in the episode description to read for free. Let's get back to the discussion, shall we? For the second half, we start by asking Darren about the challenges being faced in the healthcare sector elsewhere, not just in the UK. Are there similarities and differences for security personnel to think about, for instance? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Actually, it's something I, I reflect on on a regular basis because you know the opportunity I have to travel gives me a unique opportunity to look into people's worlds and see where those similarities are and where the differences are. I would say broadly that the challenges are the same. You know, everywhere in the world, the healthcare sector is under strain. There was two years worth of focus on COVID, which you know the backlog on operations, on you know, routine support given to the community, whether it would be cancer care or others that are obviously traditionally delivered, there's a huge backlog. So there's issues there in terms of servicing that backlog. You know, the private sector is probably slightly better equipped that they can throw more resources at it over that of the public sector that are constantly challenged with the limited resources they have. Um, But I think generally there is probably a similarity in terms of that challenge, but there are some different challenges if you look at the U.S., uh, active threat is on the increase in hospitals. So you know, we've had a whole bunch of gun incidents with uh, individuals being murdered in hospitals. There's only one last week, again reported, and it seems to be a monthly occurrence in the health education sector where there's obviously you know, a, a well-known, well-documented issue in the US with shootings in, in, in the education sector where it's hardened its security. Some of that is moved into the healthcare sector, which is another crowded environment. Mental health, again, because the mental health on the increase and the, the availability of guns in the US, again, there's a natural point of potentially an inflection point where individuals turn up with weapons, mentally unstable, and at that point you know, has a crowded space or a public accessible space, they can do huge damage. So that's a key consideration that I know a lot of healthcare organisations in the US are currently focused on and how they respond and what lessons they can learn from the education sector, which has had to face this for a number of years and has not necessarily perfected the response, but they certainly have much better tools and knowledge and skills and technology that prepare them for an active threat of some description. And I think really the last part would be sort of staffing. Staffing seems to be if you look at the UK press, this is general press, you know, they beat the UK up on a regular basis about everything, whether it's shortages at Heathrow or Gatwick with uh, baggage handlers through to you know shortages in NHS. It's the same problem everywhere. My bag gets delayed at Sydney Airport because they haven't got baggage handlers. It gets delayed at Dallas Airport because they haven't got baggage handlers. It's exactly the same in the healthcare sector. Every country that I've visited has similar challenges in terms of staff shortages. They're all being challenged with doing more with less. The interesting part for me is the US seems to have more of a technology focus in terms of how they can solve some of the problems. So without being critical to too many of uh, the Australian and the UK professionals out there, there is a lot of doing the same and expecting different results, whereas the US does tend to look at technology and say, well, what's being done in other sectors? What things can we do that others have already implemented that would have a meaningful impact? 
and that could be deploying different types of technology, whereas others seem to just put more cameras and more bodies in place and expect different results, even though they've had that same investment for the last 10 years and their problems have been increasing. So there would be a few summaries there. Really interesting. And, and Roger, Darren touched upon the technology side of things there. How have you seen technology begin to evolve its role in the healthcare security setting? You know, is it something that you're implementing in your space? And is it something that's been talked about and on the agenda, at, you know, obviously at conferences such as the uh, National Association for Healthcare Security? Is that, is that the kind of thing that's been talked about now in, in terms of the next steps? Definitely. I mean, technology is critical. You couldn't do without it. I mean, you know, and you've got to think about the different types of technologies and how you would harness them. So, for example, Roger Ringham, a director in, in the NHS, drives up to a barrier to a local hospital. You know, CCTV picks him up at the barrier. His car is picked out on AMPR to say it's his car. Facial recognition says that it's Roger Ringham. And so it lets him in. The same sort of technology can happen throughout various places within the hospital. So access control, CCTV, lighting, what we call pit alarms or personal attack alarms for staff are critical. There's a myriad of different technologies, but it all needs to work together, which at the moment it doesn't, you know, so you've got a smart system. And by that, what I mean is I've just talked about Roger Ringham coming up to a barrier as a, as a NHS director, but also you've got to think about a threat. Someone who turns up at the front door who is wanted or missing, somebody who is subject of a safeguarding order and could pose a direct threat to either vulnerable patients or staff, they should be picked up. They should be identified without human intervention, you know, and a smart system would then send a notification to the security team, to the site manager, and even through to the police control room to say that this person who's wanted and known and a threat has entered the building and can be responded to automatically, as I say, without the need for a member of staff, a member of reception or a member of the security team to recognise that person, which they won't know. So harnessing all these technologies are critical. When I also look at technologies, because we look at technologies that we employ within a hospital environment, we also must think about technologies that we can employ outside of a hospital environment. One of my concerns are my lone workers. And those are the staff that don't work within the hospital. These are the, the many, many, many staff that go out into the community. And if I talk about the top end, we can be talking about crisis home support, assertive outreach, sexual health, community mental health teams. But to be honest, any community member staff, they don't know what they're walking into, where they're going, how that environment or how that situation has changed. So lone worker devices so that which are a versatile, effective system to support them when they're out in the community where they can access uh, systems and access support when they need it is absolutely critical. It's a really good point. It's something that I've been hearing quite a lot about is that next step in security is managing the safety and security of your staff outside of that sort of facility that, you, that they're literally working in every day. And when you've got lone worker personnel, that's crucially important. So Darren, that's where I guess technology can play a really big, big role, right? Because you can't necessarily send somebody out with that person. That's just not feasible. That's the stuff isn't there. The, the resources aren't there. So the technology that's available now, hopefully can feed back into a centralized system. I guess it would be the ultimate goal. Yeah, absolutely. You look at traditional investments you know, in the US, for example, they have things like real-time location systems, RTLS. And it's basically a, a button that staff wear and they press the button and basically the security team get notified they need assistance. 
that had some value in the past, but let's be honest, it's a one-directional system. It sends an alert, it gives no context to what's happening, what's uh, happening on the grounds. The security team have got an uncoordinated response and he works in the hospital. If, for example, we put a scenario on the table, a member of the public has a loved one that's just passed away, they believe your actions weren't appropriate and they basically try to assault you in the hospital, you've got a panic button, you can press that button and you can get a response. Let's say you put away your clothes, you walk out to the car park, and that staff member's waiting in the car park for you. There's nothing in place today that gives you, unless you go to a help point and you can find that help point and press a button. So it doesn't work outside of the hospital. And when we think about what we've discussed so far today, that more and more care is being delivered outside of the hospital, actually most of the systems that are in place today are actually antiquated, they're aging, they're not fit for purpose, and they don't facilitate things like clinical care being delivered in community settings, whether that's you know, community clinics, whether it's in dentistry, doctor, surgeries, all the way through, as Roger mentioned, patients' homes. And actually, if you haven't got a consistent approach across all four of those, you end up with you know, a huge amount of silos. You end up with individual loan worker systems bought by individual departments because the trust hasn't taken a duty of care approach at a, a global level. They've taken sort of individual departmental, which is inconsistent approach to duty of care across the overall trust, which is a problem. So again, there are many opportunities now to go out and actually unify your approach, both in the hospital and outside of the hospital, bring together a system or a solution that can equip staff with a consistent approach, whether they're in the ER, whether they're walking a corridor in the hospital, walking out to the car park, working in a community or in someone's home, they engage with that service and they either get a local response from the hospital staff or they can get a coordinated response, which could also engage with the emergency service as well. Welcome back, and a huge thanks to Roger and Darren for joining us. Massively important sector to focus on, of course, and the security challenges have only risen since the start of 2019, certainly exacerbated by the pandemic. NARS held its annual conference in early November, which saw a record attendance, I believe where a key focus of the agenda was on NHS staff safety and security. This all follows from reports and accounts of rising violence towards healthcare staff, something that Roger and Darren, of course, both underlined in this episode. Darren also mentioned the impact that a rising mental health problem is having earlier on in the discussion. It's a point I hadn't originally factored in when preparing questions, but clearly a hugely important one, I think. There are obvious challenges that come with dealing with patients or visitors with mental health issues, but there's also the consideration of the mental health of security personnel themselves. It's a subject I know lots of people and associations, such as IFPO and ASIS, are discussing more and more. The increased pressures on security personnel and healthcare might well have a detrimental effect if they're experiencing more violence and abuse. Who protects the protectors, one might ask? On a more positive note, it was fascinating to hear from Darren and Roger on how tech is now playing an integral role in keeping patients and staff safe and secure, particularly loan workers. It's where the innovation of the security sector really comes into its own, I feel, and it's something I've seen a lot over the last few years when reporting on the sector. As always, there are a few links in the episode description for further reading, so do check them out. They include some of Roger and Darren's latest blogs for IFSEC Global, Trust me when I say they are just as interesting to read as they are to listen to. I'd like to finish by just underlining my own appreciation for the healthcare sector. 
There's been a huge amount of pressure throughout hospitals, care homes, GP practices, mental health facilities, and more over the last few years. And staff at all levels have stepped up under extremely challenging conditions, from administrative support staff through to surgeons and psychologists. So I just want to say thank you. That is all from this episode of the Security in Focus podcast. This has been a podcast from IFSEC Global. Don't forget to follow us on all of the social media platforms you're on to keep up with the latest in the industry. Thanks for listening and see you next time.